we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Almira Bayrosley. Tear gas and police batons used against civilians. Journalists pepper sprayed and arrested. Businesses looted and burned. It's not Cairo, Istanbul, or Hong Kong. It's cities across the United States. George Floyd! George Floyd! George Floyd! On May 25th, George Floyd, an unarmed African-American man alleged to have used a counterfeit $20 bill at a deli, was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. The officer kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes as bystanders looked on helplessly. Within days, the incident captured in a graphic video, sparked civil unrest throughout the United States, with large-scale protests in most major cities. Many of them turned violent. Police misconduct amid nationwide protests over police misconduct. Video has also surfaced showing two NYPD vehicles pushing into a crowd of demonstrators, and officials are saying that those vehicles were being struck by rocks. The protests are rooted in what Gunnar Myrdal in 1944 famously called an American dilemma the gap between America's liberal ideals and its systemic racism. Despite progress, race still plays a major role in determining where one lives, works, and goes to school in America, as well as one's interactions with the criminal justice system. We're getting tired. We're tired of seeing our black people die every day. You see me? You you see the pain in my eyes? I'm tired. I'm tired. Floyd's fatal encounter with the police seems to mark a tipping point. It comes at a time of not only deep political polarization— but also of a public health crisis. As coronavirus tears an unforgiving path across the country, numbers show it is especially devastating to one group, African-Americans. How did America get to this point? And where does it go from here? Hi there. Hi, Khalil. Our next guest traces today's crisis to America's late 18th century founding and says that drastic political and economic reforms will be needed to overcome it. Are we talking on Skype just audio? Are we? This thing is not going to be recorded for video purposes, I'm assuming. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He joins me from his home in South Orange, New Jersey. Khalil... Cities across America have erupted in grief, frustration, and rage over the past week. We've seen large demonstrations against police brutality, inequality, and racism. This is not a new problem. The U.S. Declaration of Independence declared that all men are created equal, while the U.S. Constitution represented a compromise with slave owners and offered protection to the quote-unquote peculiar institution. Why has that contradiction survived the abolition of slavery and the civil rights era? Well, the contradiction was really not a contradiction. It was only a contradiction in the aspirational language of the founding documents uh, dedicated to a very narrow conception of liberty. Uh, It turns out that the point of slavery was to harness uh, the labor capacity of people of African descent. And the story of how Americans settled on Africans is an interesting one because it demonstrates precisely the openness of the American experiment from the 17th century indentured servants from various countries in Europe, the 
indigenous population of Native Americans, uh, who, of course, had already been experimented upon in other parts of the uh, North American and South American hemispheres and continent. So uh, the contradiction was really only with the notion of liberty as a universal norm born of the Enlightenment. But in fact, slavery served the very purpose it had always intended, which was to generate wealth. I want to pick up on the point that you just made about how slavery served its true intention, which is the creation of wealth. And that's very different from thinking about slavery or racism as a political problem. Clearly, as you point out, slavery was bound up with the South's agrarian economy. How have economic interests perpetuated racism and reinforced disadvantages among the African-American community since then? The United States of America evolved its understanding and ideological and cultural ideas to fit the economic reality that Black people were meant to serve the interests of the white population. And of course, even within the white population, there was tremendous class diversity, uh, as is true in in every European nation uh, for the past uh, several millennia. So there was nothing unusual in the United States about picking a class of people uh, to be the primary laboring class. The the problem was that the United States decided (laughs) out of its need to break away from Great Britain uh, to claim universal principles or to articulate universal principles. And that's what got America into this uh, enduring contradiction that we call today, something that Edmund Morgan, the historian, uh, once termed America's uh, original sin. I want to talk about what is happening at this moment across America But maybe it would be good to start with a bit of background of your work. You're well known for pointing out that experts have been saying essentially the same thing about policing for a century now. The very first Blue Ribbon Commission on the matter, which I believe was created after the 1919 Chicago race riot, blamed biased law enforcement on the unconscious result of traditional race prejudice. The report recommended that officials treat all people fairly— and without discrimination. Can you take us through the history of such commissions? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really powerful historical lesson going back a century ago because the context, uh, I mean, couldn't be more resonant with this particular moment. So exactly 101 years ago, in the summer of 1919, the uh, demographic shifts of African-American Southerners coming to northern cities partly because of the need to escape lynching and racial terror in the South, but also because World War I had created a capacity need for uh, for industrial workers uh, to support the war effort. And as such, African-Americans, about a half a million uh, moved to places like Chicago and other industrial centers at the time. That set off intense backlash by uh, white residents of those cities, many of whom themselves were foreign-born or first-generation immigrants, Irish, Italian, Polish, especially Poles in Chicago, resented the presence of this new source of labor competition for the the jobs that were already there, uh, resented the idea that their communities, which 
while diverse by nationality, were homogenous by race, would have to accept these newcomers as equals residentially. And so these forces contributed uh, to a fateful moment on a beach when a 14-year-old was stoned to death by white beachgoers because the segregation line that extended from the sand to the shore into the water was crossed by this young man. Uh, When African-Americans appealed to a police officer on the shore for justice, uh, they were rebuffed. And white beachgoers resented that African-Americans would demand justice, took it as an affront, and went back into their neighborhoods and started wantonly attacking Black people. Black people fought back. Several hundred people were injured. About 38 people were killed, uh, the majority of whom were Black. Very few whites were arrested. And it led to the first Blue Ribbon Commission in Chicago. And what they found was striking. They found that police officers had systematically supported white citizens' racist attacks on Black homeowners. And in each of these instances, they noted that police officers, when called upon, did not arrest uh, white suspects, but in fact, uh, either arrested Black suspects for demanding justice um, or simply ignored their pleas. So one of the things they took away uh, was, one, clear demonstrable evidence of systemic racist bias by uh, law enforcement and criminal justice officials. The heart of the evidence was direct testimony from white criminal justice officials uh, themselves. They admitted on record uh, that they had bias and had shown discrimination and that their rank and file officers were participating directly in racial discrimination. It was incredible and incredibly remarkable how articulate and clear they were about what the problems were and how to fix them. And uh, the report didn't go anywhere. And what we saw play out each decade from the 1920s all the way uh, to these last few years was the same pattern of documenting systemic racism and policing and the same pattern for the most part of inaction. So given that we've seen the same result play out decade after decade, would you accept an invitation to be part of a Blue Ribbon Commission if one is put together to look at the protests happening today? I would, uh, but I would only uh, accept it if I felt that there was a genuine place for my voice and some demonstrable uh, articulation of knowing that these that such commissions themselves have been used as riot insurance or management tools to convince people to go home and let the process play out. Uh, so if the impanelers were not uh, willing to admit uh, that such commissions have often been used against reform, then I wouldn't participate. I've learned from history that perhaps the most important and influential social scientist of the 1960s, who uh, for two decades had been producing anti-racist research showing how racial disparities had a direct impact on uh, the outcomes of African-Americans that were rooted in systems and structures and discrimination, not in the behavior of those individuals. This, uh, this person's name was Kenneth Clark and his uh, famous doll studies showing the preferences of black children for white dolls as evidence of a sense of low self-esteem born of segregation contributed directly to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And so it wasn't an accident that uh, 15 years or so after that 
fateful decision to end legal segregation, Kenneth Clark was called to testify before the Kerner Commission, which, like the Chicago Commission of half a decade, half a century before Kerner, there in 1967, pulled together a panel of experts to look at the series of racial uprisings that had been going on since the mid-1960s and most acutely um, around the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so when Kenneth Clark was called to testify, uh, here was a man who had been around the block for a long time, clearly understood racial dynamics, and he said before those commissioners that he had read the Chicago Race Riot Report of 1919, which was the year that the riot occurred. He had read a Harlem report of 1943. I'm sorry, of 1935. He had read a second Harlem report based on a riot in 1943. And he had read the report pointing out what had occurred in Watts in 1965. And he said, I must plead with you commissioners that it's like Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture being reshown over and over again. The same inaction, the same recommendations, the same do-nothing response to this evidence. And for me, the power in his experience half a century ago is in letting us know that people could have learned in that moment from history, but chose to look away. Well, that also makes me think about the book by Richard Rothstein, um, The Color of the Law, you know, you, you're talking about the commission and its findings, and I think there has been a lot of focus on the police and its relationship to black communities. But when you take a look at the institutions of the United States of America, the oppression of African Americans has been is seeped into every aspect, whether it's at the federal level, definitely on a legislative level, but also within the judiciary. And I'm specifically thinking about housing laws and way housing loans were extended to African Americans in the history of the United States. Yes. And and the good thing about pointing out the brick and mortar federally sanctioned structural racism uh, is that it really does push back against the more dominant narrative of personal responsibility and Black pathology, which has dominated national policy discussions really for the past 40 years. Richard Rothstein's work, like ta Coates's essay in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, like Beryl Sater's work on contract buying, which is what formed the historical uh, evidence for ta article, shows us in part that historians have been a really important part of digging up the evidence to make yet again another forceful case. But the thing we can't take a whole lot of comfort in is that these were policies that were enacted in plain view of voting publics. And so white people who are the majority of the population have been quite comfortable on both sides of the political aisle, accepting that you could have a federally sponsored form of legalized apartheid in the United States, particularly in the form of housing policy. So that, again, is not a discovery problem. That is a political problem. It is a moral problem of whether or not the majority population uh, will accept egalitarianism as a fact rather than as an idea. We'll be right back.
If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. I want to stay on policy here for a moment. You mentioned that we have a moral problem in accepting egalitarianism, but haven't we seen some movement towards rectifying past wrongs, especially when it comes to policing? There's now more of an emphasis on the use of body cameras and de-escalation training. And in Minneapolis, which has seen a number of high-profile shootings, the city appointed a Black Mexican-American as chief of police. And yet we're still here. What's more important, policy or culture? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really important point to emphasize that we often focus too much on particular legislative fixes or policy levers that we can pull. So on one hand, the Minneapolis case is particularly troubling uh, because it does represent a police agency that has at least four of its officers who have been uh, subjected to these changes. They are, have been bound by all of these changes from the training itself to the wearing of the body cameras to, le- to new leadership, and yet this happened. So I think there are two things uh, that we ought to take away, maybe three. One is that Aaron Dondo did something that hasn't happened before. He fired all those officers immediately. Uh, so that, in some ways, does represent a change and a positive change that just hasn't been the case. So I think we, one, we need to, to reflect on Aaron Dotto's leadership has given us something more substantial uh, than, than we've seen before. I think the second thing is that police unions play a huge role in working against reforms. And so while officers can be subject to mandatory training, it doesn't mean they actually have to embrace that training other than the fact that when they step outside a policy, they are fundamentally punished for it. So we're seeing a phenomenon in a number of cases where officers are reinstated by the protections of collective bargaining agreements negotiated by unions. And then I think the third thing is that while Minneapolis may be exceptional for seeing all these things come together, the vast majority of police agencies, 18,000 in the United States, uh, have not taken up a lot of these changes. Body cameras have proven to be insufficient to the problem because essentially justice is in the high eye of the beholder. And so as long as a majority of elected officials and a white majority public see the same thing that black victims see and say, mm, I would have been afraid if that guy had, you know, not completely laid down in this moment or not raised his voice and say, why are you doing this to me? I mean, that was threatening. I mean, I'm just making this up to to an extent. But the point being that those reforms are not going to be taken up. And so body cameras is one reform, but the others around de-escalation, around mandatory reporting of when officers go rogue. According to Campaign Zero, which is following a lot of these legislative changes, 
few police agencies in the country, they actually don't enumerate the number, have taken up such proposals. They argue that the vast majority have not. So this is when you get to the culture question, the culture is not, again, just uh, about the police. It's not just even about the unions that support them. It's also about our our acceptance that we would allow people to work in our name. You don't get hired. You know, you have to get hired first before you can join the union, right? So we are still hiring people and accepting that and, and passing this sort of broad-based notion that all police officers or anybody who wants to serve or wear the badge, you know, want to help people and are by definition good people. Good people can be racist and good people can do racist things. And so in order to prevent good people from doing racist things is to change the incentive structure for their behavior, to punish them, to hold everybody accountable for when they decide to act on their racism. Whatever's in their head, you know, fine. Keep it in your head or in your heart. But when you act on it, when you articulate it, when you express it, when you do harm to others in the name of it, then it has to be uh, unacceptable. How do we hold police unions accountable then? We have to write legislation that changes the rules, the collective bargaining agreements. Every union is subject to an agreement. Every agreement is subject to a contract renewal. And so we have to say we are no longer going to accept restrictions on personnel access or public scrutiny uh, of officer behavior because they deserve anonymity, just like some private employee in a private corporation. The truth is the Me Too moment has shown us that a lot of private corporations are no longer willing to hide the anonymity of serial abusers of women in the workplace precisely because it's bad for business. It's bad for their reputation to say, well, you know, this thing just happened. We don't know what really happened, but this person doesn't work here anymore. These people are acting with the greatest expression of state power, the monopoly on violence to take another person's life. And the thought that somehow they're protected with privacy agreements that cannot be scrutinized by public entities is absurd. It's exactly absurd precisely because independent citizen review boards, which would provide a level of anonymity by virtue of non-disclosure agreements where public citizens are given confidential information to then judge the merits of the behavior of an offending officer is not entirely public. It is subject to a certain kind of privacy agreement. And we can't even get independent citizen review boards to have the kind of enforcement power that they should have. So at every step along the way where we the citizens of these communities could actually demand that elected officials either lead this effort or not get elected, have not done so. Can you speak more to that? What do we need elected officials to do at this moment? First of all, African-Americans will continue to protest and demonstrate, particularly young people. They'll continue to organize and they'll continue to draw attention to the immoral uh, premature death that they experience at the hands of the state. Okay, so... That's going to keep happening. But it's not clear that it's going to be enough. The civil rights movement wasn't enough until white elected officials decided uh, to do something about it. And so as much as we romanticize social movements and the people who make great sacrifices to do that work, there has to be a translation between the people who are putting their bodies on the line and the actual decision makers who speak on behalf of all of us. 
So we will absolutely need more elected officials to be willing to lose elections, to be willing to have a hard time raising money by centering racial justice as part of a vision of a new America. So we are in an election year. How can Joe Biden, Donald Trump's presumptive challenger, persuade Americans that he can solve these problems? So in my opinion, Joe Biden has to use every opportunity uh, as a candidate and as an elected president, if he if he should win, uh, admitting every mistake he's ever made. He's got to tell exactly the truth of the choices that he made. Every example of societies around the world, post-genocidal societies, post-Holocaust societies, they don't work unless there's truth and reconciliation. They don't work unless victims and perpetrators come together and hear each other out and agree to move forward based on a full accounting of what occurred. And in this country, that just simply hasn't happened. We have recreated the circumstances of the civil rights movement, let alone slavery, as some kind of great American tale of exceptionalism, that only in America, as Obama used to say, can uh, the son of a Kenyan immigrant and a Kansas white woman become president. And so we've opted in for not enough truth-telling, but in fact, a kind of celebration of our exceptionalism, which is just a gloss over tremendously unjust systems that are perpetuated today. So my advice to Joe Biden is, all those critiques of him and the crime bill, of his resistance to busing, what he did to Anita Hill, like he needs to make those central arguments in convincing not just African-Americans who are going to vote for him and put him in office. He needs to gain their trust through his own honesty, but he needs to model for the rest of white America what it means to come to terms with the choices that people have made. When Ralph Northam was caught, the the governor of Virginia, on a page in a yearbook who admitted in the initial reporting that it was him, then with enough handlers around because he's in a purple turned blue state and they can get a lot of things done, he should just try to deny it. And then they have an investigation and they say, maybe this isn't him. We can't actually prove that it's him. The most obvious thing is like, if that was my yearbook and I was being presented as either a man in a Klan hood or in blackface, I would have evidence of having written to the editor of the yearbook to say this is an outrage, not to mention that this isn't just about Ralph Northam. The yearbook was published. No one could point to any evidence of white people in in that, I believe, Virginia school um, saying, how in the world could this happen? What happened instead is USA Today looked at about 120 college yearbooks and found 900 examples of the same thing. So when I say Joe Biden needs to model truth and reconciliation, if we are to believe that he is going to do something fundamentally different, I mean that someone like Ralph Northam needed to take that moment and say, not only did I let this happen, but this is how we thought about Black people 30 years ago. And everybody else did too. And there are a lot of people who still think that way to do because they're my cousins and they voted for Donald Trump. And you know, I've been working on this for a long time and I'm gonna do better because I see what the consequences of this means. I see what it means to my own children who are challenging me. Joe Biden's not talking about that. Joe Biden is giving some apologies and some promises, but we're not learning anything about how this works. 
And so if people want to model leadership in the 21st century, they need to show us what does it mean to admit that you have been part of this system, that you have benefited from this system, and that because you're admitting this, you're going to do everything in your power to change your own behavior as a model for others to follow. Khalil, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? Well, what gives me hope is that uh, we can most certainly uh, keep trying and talking through our differences. Um, And I don't mean you and mine. I mean uh, our meaning those who stand on the side of justice and those who are bystanders uh, or are opposed. Uh, I wouldn't do this work. Um, I wouldn't participate in these calls. And I most certainly wouldn't feel good about raising my children. Uh, I have three of them uh, in this country if I didn't believe that there was the possibility for change. But I will tell you this as my parting thought. Uh, this is not uh, fundamentally going to be sustained through a policy initiative. Joe Biden could have the most transformative presidency in U.S. history. He could top Lincoln. He could top FDR. He could top LBJ on race. But he'll only be in office at most for eight years. And so if we don't do the hard work to hardwire and redefine what justice means in America for the people who have been least likely to receive it, uh, then some other person will come along after Joe Biden and undo or try to undo as much as possible. Uh, So people listening to this podcast need to commit themselves to a period of self-study, of self-reflection, of challenging the assumptions they make about why people are the way they are. And more than anything else, they need to teach every child born in this country in the wake of this moment needs to learn a different version of the American story, because that's the glue that binds us all together. That's the collective narrative we tell about who we are. And that story hasn't been working. We need a new one. Khalil, thank you so much. You're very welcome. That was Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Bersalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.